Hey, everybody. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Saluki Hall of Famer and former quarterback Joel Samberski. I can promise you from Joel's perspective that he is as transparent as he was in part one when he was talking about some of the glory days being the Saluki quarterback. But part two, we'll have a little bit different mood and a different tone as we transition into talking about his son, Teddy, and his family and some of the health struggles that they've dealt with collectively uh, surrounding Teddy's birth in 2017. And one of the parallel storylines going on in Joel's life at that point was he was serving on the SIU Board of Trustees, and he was tested in his morals. And we'll talk about how he had to stay strong in some of those morals, even though there were some forces maybe pulling him away from some of those things he believed in. Can't wait for you to hear it. This is part two with Joel Samberski here on the Saluki Standards Podcast. Uh, Let's talk about your family. First, how Southern led you to your wife, Samantha. How did you guys meet? What was your first interaction? Well, I saw her in the weight room. um, And... I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I know that like I'm not very impressive in a weight room. So that's not normally the, the, the place to try to make a move. But she was a collegiate golfer. Um, she um, uh, was recruited by Diane Doherty uh, uh, to golf at Southern. And, and so she was in the weight room one day, she probably had, you know, she was just in there cause she was told to, I, I, I don't know, maybe the women's golf program today has a more uh, uh, regimented workout schedule, but at the time you got about, you know, 80 guys in this weight room and, and Samantha has to walk in there cause she's probably got this workout that she's supposed to do. And, and, and so I remember her looking a little bit like how, how fast can I get out of here? Um, and, and I, and that's when I saw her and I, you know, obviously, uh, thought she was, uh, uh, cute and, uh, just by, by chance, um, I bumped into her, um, not long after at a bar. Okay. And I had a couple beers in me and, um, and her and I just talked and we talked all night and, um, um, and here we are now, what? 12 years of marriage and four kids and, and both made Southern Illinois our home. I'm guessing maybe the um, most memorable day or maybe the most challenging day would be April 13th, 2017 when your, your son Teddy is born. Um, What were the emotions on that day for the two of you? Yeah. I mean, just super uh, scared, excited, you know, nervous, not really knowing what to expect. Um, I feel like Connor though, I have to, I have to tell a little bit more about Sam before I get into this. Sure. Cause it's a really neat story. So we all know, um, and remember and love coach Callahan. And so, so his dad was a member of the board of trustees at, um, at Southern and, um, his dad would um, was known for um, basically taking newspaper clippings of local, you know, newspaper stories of athletes and sending them to Saluki coaches. So Sam was not even on Diane Doherty's radar 
until one day she got a newspaper clipping from Dan Callahan's father saying, you should really recruit this gal. She's a good player. And my wife grew up in Springfield. And Diane, to this day, swears that Samantha would not have been a Saluki had she not received that clipping from Dan Callahan's uh, father. And I was able to share that with Coach Cal. I mean, Coach Cal and his dad has as much to do with, um, you know, me getting married to Samantha as anybody probably. And so uh, it's pretty, it's a pretty kind of neat story, but, but yeah, April 13th. So we have, you know, four kids. Um, uh, we have, um, um, we were married in, in 2008 um, and we have four kids now. And our youngest one, Theodore, was um, my wife was just in the uh, just doing a routine sort of um, uh, after we found out she was pregnant, just routine checkup. Um, and they went in to, to kind of listen to the heart. Um, and um, and the, the nurse just said, you know what, I just think something's a little off, which is not necessarily what you want to hear. But when they're developing at that early of an age, um, sometimes it just takes a while for the, for the heart to kind of work itself out. Right. So, so she went and got the doctor and the doctor decided that, um, just to be extra cautious that they should, uh, send, uh, Samantha to St. Louis for kind of some additional monitoring. And, um, um, and so they send us, sent, sent her to St. Louis. She's in there. They're listening to the heart. And uh, I'm up there with Sam as well. And they, they're like, hey, you know what? We just feel like we need to take um, uh, just extra precaution, let her stay overnight. Um, and since we had three other kids, they end up sending me home because obviously we got somebody who needs to take care of those kids. So, um, so I get to Carbondale and I pull into my driveway and I get the call and it's uh, Sam and it's like, hey, um, you need to start working your way up here. The heart seems to be uh, beating at a much more rapid heart rate, which when, when they discovered the arrhythmia, the thing that they said initially was, hey, this is very, this is common, but we just want to make sure it doesn't become a rapid heart rate because that means something's not working out well for the, for the child. So I jump in my car, drive back to St. Louis. And when I show up at the hospital and I'm, you know, I'm, they basically tell Sam that we got to go in and take the baby now. So, um, uh, I'm driving as absolutely fast as I can to get there. Um, I'm, it's like a scene out of a movie. I'm running up to the, to the you know, front desk, trying to figure out where I'm going. There's somebody that's annoyed that I'm asking questions. They don't realize that I'm not like a panicky, like I'm actually, my wife's literally having a baby and get me to where I'm going. And I show up and I got to put all down on the gown and all the pr precautionary, you know, stuff that you got to wear. And I see like, as soon as I'm putting that stuff on, I'm right outside of, um, cause they had to do a C-section. I'm right outside of the, uh, the operating room. And I see three or four doctors coming out, smiling, everything's fine. I'm starting to put on like the, all the stuff. And then I hear, get them back in here, get them back in here. And I just saw this look of just, just fear on these 
doctor's face and I didn't really understand what was going on, of course. And so by the time that I make it in there, the baby's already born. Um, and so, like I said, they had to go in and get him really fast and they were actually having to hit him with the, the, those electrical, those pads. And, and so it was just obviously shocking, jarring, I, I, you know, that whole situation was, 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 was crazy. Um, he's born, um, and, uh, he was born at four and a half pounds. Uh, he was two months premature. Um, but after that, really that initial scare, um, he, he, he was doing, doing much better. They put him on some medicine to kind of try to, to correct the, uh, the heart and, um, and everything was working out fine. He ended up staying a, um, a month in the St. Louis children's hospital. And, um, this is a really long story, Connor. Are you, are you okay? Man? I mean, it's, it's fascinating though. It's, but it's, it's just, there's no, there's just so much, there's no way to, there's no way to like, um, to, to, you know, I'm, I'm, believe it or not, I'm actually giving you the cliff notes version. So, uh, but so he spends a month in, in St. Louis and, um, and they decide, and, you know, so he's dealing with the th- other things that premature kids are dealing with, you know, the lungs aren't fully developed, the, you know, so he has some work to do. And, and so, but the doctors decided um, that since we have three other kids in Carbondale, that the best thing for Theodore and for their whole family was to send him back to Carbondale in order to just allow his lungs to f- continue to fully develop before he ultimately comes home with us. So obviously mom and dad were super excited about that. We, um, you know, so they were able to, to get an ambulance to transport him to his new home or what was going to be his new home in Carbondale. And, um, you know, mom and dad are out filming the ambulance coming in. We're super excited, you know, welcome home, Teddy, the whole deal. And he was in that little, like a little box, like, um, you know, what they're, when there's, he's hooked up to everything, they're monitoring him really well. And they transport him into the, into his unit. And my wife, man, like, I'm just telling you, she's just incredible. Um, but she just felt like something was off. And now granted, she had just spent a month in a really stressful situation, you know, and, and so it would have been really easy to not kind of trust her instincts or dismiss it as, you know, anxiety or, or, or an overprotective sort of parent. But she just kind of felt like something was, was not right uh, when she saw him. And even though he's hooked up to monitors and, and the heart rate and everything seemed to be normal um, with, within an hour, he was like going into almost like septic shock. Um, and so, as you can imagine, the doctors in Carbondale were expecting as we were to be receiving a healthy baby that just needed a little bit more time to develop. Now they were having to run all sorts of tests. Um, the nurse had to, um, um, like his heart rate was dropping, his oxygen levels were, were dropping significantly. So they had to go in and um, uh, intubate him. They had to, and they were running tests and when they found out that his white blood cells had, had dropped significantly, they realized that he had an infection that there's no way for anybody to know that. And just by pure coincidence, it just so happened on the day of his transport is the day that, that, that infection started to kind of rear its ugly head. And so the doctor made, um, 
a great decision to life flight him back to St. Louis. And so we went from celebrating the arrival to what we thought was his new home to um, getting back to St. Louis and, and just a really, really scary situation. And, um, and so we get back to St. Louis and um, you know, I don't think I realized um, I think Sam, Sam understood, but I think I wouldn't allow myself to understand how sick he was um, but, um, um, I would find out later that the doctors did not expect him to make it through that night. And, uh, um, but the, obviously the good news is, is he did and he did. And, and we, 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 um, um, but he started to have seizures. And what happened was, is that that infection got into his spinal fluid and ended up making its way to his brain. And so he started having seizures um, and was, was really, really sick for, for 10, you know, 10 days or so. Um, so it was a really hard period in our life for sure. Um, uh, once um, they uh, were able to, you know, basically get him to the point where he, he was at stable, then they had to really deal with what was going on electronically with his brain. Um, he started having swelling in the brain, um, uh, as a result of that infection. And, um, so they ended up having to do surgeries to put a shunt in, um, and, uh, and then had to deal with the epilepsy that, that, that had developed. Um, and, um, and so he spent another, uh, three months, in the St. Louis Children's Hospital and is absolutely miraculously has um, uh, recuperated, um, is doing, you know, doing really, really well. And, um, and so after a, a pretty jarring three months, really a jarring one month and then him getting to be stable and, but then they just wanted to keep him a little bit, longer they uh sent him home with us it was on a thursday um and uh it was um and it was the it was the hardest weekend i mean we we've had newborn kids before we've had crying we've had kids you know we we've done the whole no sleep thing but by the time he got out of um the st louis children's hospital uh into our house um that weekend, I mean, we didn't sleep. He was just constantly, I mean, it was, it was, it was tough. Monday, we happened to have a follow-up um, and, um, and back in St. Louis. And then that's when we discovered that the infection actually robbed him of his hearing uh, and uh, took away his hearing and he had profound hearing loss, which really in every way came to a shock to us. We knew that the infection had, um, we just remember the doctor talking about devastating consequences. Um, and, you know, I know that that, you know, I'll never forget that word, but it's devastating. So we knew that there were going to be, if we could survive that infection, we knew that there were going to be challenges that he would face, but we were a thousand percent convinced that he could hear. Uh, we knew that blindness was a possibility and we knew that epilepsy was a possibility based on the infection that he had, but we really felt like he could hear. And so that on that Monday, getting that news was just a, was a total shock to us. I mean, quite candidly. Um, and, uh, and it was really, really, really hard. 
how did you grieve during that time when all this was going on? Man, I tell you, um, just through friends and faith. I mean, we just have really solid family and, and friends that um, loved us in the midst of it, were there for us. Um, and then just just hoping and praying that that all of this was part of God's plan and, um, and that in some way, uh, in a big way, I think that, that, uh, the good Lord's going to have, um, you know, that Teddy's going to have a, a, an impact on people's lives. And I think that's already happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that's, you know, that's kind of it. I, I just remember like reading a book or listening to a podcast or something about, I think it was a marathoner, um, talking about how they train for marathons and, and, when they get to the end, they really are just trying to like, they, they, they bring it down to, I just need to get, it starts out like, all right, I need to get through that mile. And then it gets really hard. And it's like, I got to get through that, you know, half mile. And it, and it gets to the point where you're like, you're just trying to get, make it 10 yards at a time. And that's how we were in the hospital. We, we went from never thinking, we thought that the hardest part was behind us um, after that very first month. And we realized that really the race had not even begun. And so we were just trying to get, we were breaking it down to, we just got to get through the next hour. We got to get through that next doctor's appointment. Um, and, uh, and just, just one, one step at a time. Um, and, um, and then just relying on people. We had a whole host of family and friends that just, I mean, there would be, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but there'd be like a days at a time where we, we just knew our other kids were taken care of. We didn't know how necessarily because we were so in on it with, with Teddy and trying to, you know, when it was really, really, really hard, but we just knew that people took it, were taking care of them. And, um, and I think that's um, a reflection of just the good natured people that we happen to find ourselves um, uh, in relationship with. It's hard enough as parents being the adults with a lot of life experience behind you to deal with something like that. But what about the kids? I mean, how did, how did Teddy's siblings at a very young age handle and process what was going on with their brother? You know, so I think that for our oldest, um, I think that's going to be an experience that she'll never forget. I think our, our um, two and a half year old, she's not going to have a recollection of that. I wonder about it with my, with my, with Jace, our, uh, my oldest boy, but they, they were as tough as Teddy was. And, um, you know, they were scared. They, this was all new to them as it was for us. Uh, we didn't have all the answers. Um, we all like to have answers. Okay. This is bad. Tell me, tell me how bad is it? And the thing is with the brain, it's such a complicated thing that even the, the smartest folks in the world, they can't tell you what, you know, what this means for him developmentally, what it means for potential challenges you may face. And so um, as we were navigating through that with our kids, they're just rock solid and they're great kids. And I, and, and they're, they're super tough and, you know, they're learning sign language, they're learning, um, uh, I think the biggest thing uh, that that I'm so proud with my other kids is just the empathy that they have towards other people. And I don't care if my kid, my my son ever throws a game winning touchdown against the top ranked team, but 
he has empathy for others because he sees he because he has that for Teddy. So differences in people, disabilities, um, you know, they're attuned to that. And um, and I'm proud of that. And uh, and so and I love that about them. And I see the impact that our youngest is already having in their lives. They're learning sign language and and um, and and they, they love to talk to their friends about Theodore and and uh, his situation. And so so that's you know, that's what I'm I'm really proud of of my kids. And 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 so if I if I may, Connor, I'll just kind of continue the story because believe it or not, it's not even over yet. Sorry about that. Please do. I'm all here. So, um, yeah, so we find out about that and that was, um, you know, that was super, you know, challenging with him losing his hearing. And then, um, and then six, uh, three months later, um, Theodore started to have, um, seizures. Now, as a result of the seizures he had initially when the infection came in, he was still on seizure medicine. Um, um, and it wasn't like the seizures that are maybe more profound in, in folks that have epilepsy, like, you know, I know Coach Kill, when he would have seizures on the sideline, it would be, you know, really, obviously very noticeable. But like with Theodore, it was not as noticeable. It was just kind of like small little movements or a fluttering of the eyes or something like that, that we, without an experience or knowing this, we didn't really know what, what that meant. We didn't even know his seizures, to be honest with you. So what we were told with our um, uh, neurology team, with Teddy's neurology team, was to go ahead and record them and then to send that to them. And then they would be able to view that. And then, and so we were doing that. And, um, and the big thing is they just didn't want it to go ever go over five minutes. So we would record them, we would send it out to them and, uh, and they would just kept increasing the seizure medicine that he was on. And then he'd have another one a couple days later, and then they'd increase it again. And then they got to the point where there was no more room to move on the seizure meds. Um, and my wife just, again, I mean, just, man, just so fortunate. She just said, you know, Joel, something's not right. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't right. And she just put Teddy in the car and drove him to the emergency room and in St. Louis. And as she was kind of describing what was going on with Theodore, um, she um, overheard one of the ER docs. So this wasn't even his team. This was like on a Saturday night or, you know, some like 10 o'clock at night by the time that she finally got in there. And we, that's when we first heard about infantile spasms. And we had, we just, we had no idea about it. We didn't know about it, but um, that's when the they were able to um, do a, a, a range of tests on him. And the thing about infantile spasms is um, it's easy to diagnose, I guess. There's a, an electronic pattern, if you will, of brain waves that is pretty noticeable, um, but they're really, really, really bad on the brain. And, and no seizure is healthy. There are no good seizures out there. They are all really, really um, uh, bad. There are certain types of seizures that um, 
it's my understanding that people can have and continue to function um, uh, to some to some level of normalcy. Um, and then there are seizures like that infantile spasms have where they're absolutely debilitating to the brain. And so as you can imagine, given everything that we already been through at that point, when we learned about infantile spasms, I mean, it was just, it was, it was just a, a crushing kind of blow. Um, and so the doctor was just like, we have to, at all costs, we have to get these things to stop. And which, led us to basically two or three different options that we could choose from. And man, talk about trying to make a call on this. I mean, every one of the range of options had pretty significant um, side effects. And, and um, so, and infantile spasms is rare enough. There's not a lot of studies that suggest which one's the best approach. And the doctor kind of put it in our hands to, to make a call. But one, one form of treatment, um, greatly suppressed his immune system when it would actually have to be uh, administered in the hospital. Um, another one, there, he would become at a high risk of blindness. Um, in another one, it would, it would uh, potentially reduce his um, um, uh, immune system and, uh, and he would have other consequences as well. And they all had about a 30 or 40% success rate. They did do some studies out in um, in England that suggested if you combine a couple of the different treatment options, it'd be about a 43% success rate. And we were just fully committed to try to do everything that we could to get these things to stop. And, um, and so we decided to combine the treatment. And um, well, one of the, one of the aspects of that was this highly regulated medicine that they only had, I think a couple different pharmacies in the country or something that held on to that, if I remember that correct. So they were having to work through the paperwork to get that um, before we could actually administer that. But they started him on another, on the other form of treatment. Again, we were going to combine the two and within a day of them starting that other treatment, all the seizures just stopped, which just blew everybody's mind. Um, which was great for many reasons because that debilitation of the brain was able to stop. And then we also didn't have to administer that other medicine, which had these devastating potential devastating consequences with it. Um, and I can tell you to this day, man, it, I know this is a lot to take in. It's a lot, but he still hasn't had any seizures to this day. And, and his neurology team is in every way kind of just blown away by this, just, everything that he's endured to this point. And um, now we've got a awesome three and a half year old little boy that's running around. He's got a cochlear implant in one side um, and a hearing aid in the other. And he's got a shunt um, that's, um, that's been surgically implanted in his brain. And he is one of the kids and he's doing great. If, if any, what are some of the long-term challenges that he could face now that you know, he's, he's gotten through some of these early life difficulties. Well, I mean, so kids developmentally, you never know, right? So right. How, how much, um, how much he's able to soak in and communicate and do all of that physically. He looks like he's, he's progressing very, very well. Um, I think verbally, I think everybody's pretty amazed at how well he's doing from that standpoint. 
Um, but he has 90% hearing loss in both of his ears and he needs a hearing aid and uh, he needs cochlear implants to help him hear. And so what challenges that's going to provide to him, i tell you what, with everything that kid has fought through, I think he's going to be able to handle, handle it really well. And, um, and we're just kind of blown away that has progress at this point. And so I think for us, we're just trying to figure out what's the best way to get him the education that he needs the communication that he needs and, um, and, and also the love and support and make sure that, that, um, that he understands that, yeah, he's going to be a little different. Yeah. He's going to be communicating a little bit different. Um, but that he has a community that he fits into. And so we've learned a lot about, uh, as, as much as we can, I think about, uh, the resources that he has available and he's just, he's just a miracle child. He, he really is. Uh, before we move on, I, I just want to say thank you for your courage and in that journey and also sharing that story with us. I mean, that's, that's not easy stuff to talk about. Um, so I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me and, and with our listeners too. Well, t- thanks, man. You're welcome. I tell you what though, you know, we, we have an, we have a happy ending to the story and, um, there's a lot of kids in that, um, uh, children's hospital a lot of parents that don't have that and um and we just feel and we recognize that and 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 you know those the people that work in those hospitals they really do just incredible work and they saved our child's life and and um and we just really hope and pray that teddy's going to be able to be an inspiration to a lot of kids um, um in his life a lot of people in his life I, I mean this sincerely. I feel like if we were in like an auditorium full of people that you telling that story would get and deserves like a standing ovation. Um, it, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's really, really neat that you guys came out on the other side of it and have a story to tell and, and you can help people now. If we feel that way, we really do. And, and, and believe it or not, that really was the cliff notes version. So it's, um, it's kind of a lot to, di- to, to say, and it's a lot to digest. And I hope the, the listeners understand why I went through, went through that. Um, and, uh, and so thank you. Yeah. Well, we can get a beer after COVID and I'd, I'd love to hear the, the full version. <laughs> it, may be, it may need to be two beers then. So <laughs> cool, with me. cool with me. Um, you know, the, the other impact you've had on the community, um, is, you know, your time on the board serving on the Southern Illinois university board of trustees. Uh, first of all, when, when you began that part of your life, why did you want to serve and give back to your alma mater? Well, it's just a great opportunity to make an impact. And, you know, so everything I just described, um, was going on while I was serving on the board of trustees um, so as you can imagine, it was just a lot to juggle, but when, when you're asked to serve on the board of an institution that you absolutely adore, you love, you, you, you see the value that that institution has and in, in your life, I'm a first generation college grad. My wife's a first generation college grad. We've seen what, um, uh, education, how it's transformed our family, how it's transformed other families. Uh, we see the impact that um, uh, Southern Illinois University has in the region, and um, 
it, it's, you know, the, the nurse that found that heart arrhythmia was an SIU, I think Edwardsville. Um, yeah, it was an SIU Edwardsville uh, nursing program graduate. The heart doctor that treated Teddy was an SIU uh, Carbondale School of Medicine graduate. I mean, these are people that are truly making an impact on people's lives. And so for me to step in and, and, um, and to be, to serve on a board to help steer that institution. It's just a huge honor. Um, it was an, it was an incredible amount of work. Um, but it was all work that's worthy to be done. You know, a lot of people have similar stories to you. They want to give back to something they're passionate about, or they've been a part at part of. And, um, you know, I, I think it goes for any sort of political type position. Um, and then some people find there can be frustrations and you can't get done what you want to get done. But on your time on the board, what's something or multiple things that you feel like you've accomplished that did change your alma mater? Wait, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, I'm really proud that, um, that we were able to hold down uh, tuition costs and fees um, uh, the way that we did for the five years that I served on the board. Uh, we had the slowest growth of tuition and fees um, that we've had in a long time. I think that's important. Um, you know, there, there's, there's to get the uh, SIU School of Nursing, uh, the SIU Carbondale School of Nursing program, you know, pushed really hard on that and uh, was able to get that done. I mean, the, the reality is, is that Carbondale has faced challenges that are very unique Um that other institutions are not facing. You know, one of the things about COVID right now is that for the most part, every higher education university is having to figure this thing out. Well, there were challenges that we faced on that board that were pretty unique to either SAU, uh, the system, or, or schools in the state of Illinois. As an example, we went 18 months without a, a budget. We didn't have a budget. I mean, I own a business. Like, how do you, how does, and I do financial planning. So like budgeting is a pretty important concept. And so how do you make decisions when you don't know how much money is going to be coming in and coming out? And then how do you recruit in students when every day they're reading a newspaper or they're hearing about university school, uh, uh, Illinois schools shutting down as a result of not having a budget? So it was an incredibly difficult environment to, to find myself on, on the board. Secondly, we had two tragedies that happened in, in leadership. Um, first, we lost completely, unexpectedly, um, uh, our chancellor. Um, we, we lost two chancellors. And um, uh, Paul Sarvla uh, passed away very unexpectedly early on in my uh, tenure on the board. Uh, we went through a national search. Um, and then um, when Teddy was in the hospital and all that stuff was going on, the other thing that I was doing is I was running back to Carbondale when I felt like he was in a, a stable position. And I would do um, with the board, um, I would do interviews with uh, chancellor candidates. And we were able to find someone that I uh, view as, uh, as a great chancellor candidate. And it's Carlo Montemagno, who really, I think, helped re-envision um, uh, how we were doing things as a university. And then um, within, I think a, a, it was maybe a year or, or not long after he passed away very unexpectedly. And so um, 
you know, those were some really hard things to deal with. Um, and then as we operate as a system, you have the challenges that systems face um, when you have SIU Carbondale and then SIU Edwardsville and you have sort of that dynamic. And so it was, it was a tumultuous time. It was challenging, but the work was all worth it because I think it's a position that you can't have an impact on. Uh, your vote does matter. Now you're one of seven votes, but at the end of the day, it's one of seven. It does matter. And, um, and again, the work that you do is important to a lot of people. Uh, I know legally you might not be able to disclose some of the things from, you know, the Carbondale Edwardsville situation. Um, but you know, maybe everybody listening doesn't have a full understanding of everything that went on with the reallocation of funds and Randy Dunn and trying to move money. Um, if you would just give people an idea of kind of that whole situation and your involvement in, in what was going on. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, on top of, you know, two chancers passing away, having, not having a budget, um, you know, on top of that, we had a situation that was going on in the president's office that really is just un, unprecedented. I mean, it's just unprecedented. And, you know, I'm going to, uh, a lot of the details that people want to find, I'm sure that they can Google. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the point is, is that as a member of the board, I had a fiduciary responsibility to do what's right for the system. And that system is not just Carbondale. Look, I played at Carbondale. I have two degrees from Carbondale. My home is in Carbondale. I get it. Like people are going to look at me who don't like me as a board member and think that I just care about Carbondale in the same way that maybe people down here may look at someone who lives in Edwardsville that's on the board. That's uh, making a vote that thinks that they don't care about Carbondale and that that's just always going to exist. And I tried my hardest to, to make sure that at the end of the day, people can think what they want, but how did you vote? And 98% of the time, things that were important to people in Edwardsville to that campus, I supported but there was an attempt to do the largest budgetary shift with no, by, by the president's office with no research um, behind sort of the backs of, of people um, not following any sort of process that would have had a devastating impact to not just the Carbondale campus, but to, I think, to the, to the system as a whole. And I didn't like how that transpired, of course. Um, there were other members on the board that that came to a shock as well. Um, you know, just in March before our meeting, we had all discussed publicly a willingness to evaluate how the university system distributes funds and we really had a good faith effort to take up the work of doing that evaluation. And then I think 11 or 12 days later, there was an agenda item in our April board meeting that did the opposite of that, that just shifted funds and was, was opposite of what we all just discussed. And so that, that, that was a subject that was very passionate to a lot of people in Edwardsville. They felt like they were not getting enough funds. And then there are people in Carbondale that felt like 
well, if the system's unfair, let's let's evaluate it and make and see where that unfairness lies. And my feeling is like, let's be data-driven leaders that evaluates this and makes good sound decisions, not based on where they live or where they got their degree, but based on actual data, actual facts. And, and so that, that was a really, that was kind of the beginning of uh, a tough situation that I had and other members of the board had with uh, the president. And then we essentially found a lot of, um, a lot of information that there were other things going on at that time um, that were even bigger than a, than a reallocation of funds. And so members of the board really had to, to make a decision on do, and I was one of them is do we want to allow that sort of activity to take place or do we want to stand strong and say that that, no, that can't happen. If we're going to be fiduciaries of the system, that sort of stuff cannot happen. And so, listen, it would have been very easy for me um, to have just stepped away and say, look, my kid's in the hospital. I've got a lot of um, a lot of other things that I'm dealing with that are very important, obviously, to me um, and just step away. And I, and I wanted to, to be very candid with you, um, I wanted to step away. It was taking everything I'd already written a resignation letter. It was just, it was taking everything for me to stay on that board. But when I found and kind of, yeah, just discovered everything that was going on, I just felt like it would have, it, it would have been completely wrong for me to step away at that time. And so um, I decided to stand up and, and, and expose it and fight it. And I knew that that was going to um, not make a lot of people happy. And, um, and that's okay. At the end of the day, you know, Coach Kill had three rules in college. It's uh, be, on, be on time, go to class and do the right thing. And I'm not always on time. I did go to class. But doing the right thing is big, especially when you are entrusted with something as important as um, – uh, uh, making decisions for the SIU system. And so um, in that five years, we had a lot going on. Um, I don't have any regrets except a couple, um, but I won't go into those specifically. <laughs> but, um, but I am proud of how I left the university knowing that I didn't make the, necessarily the, the easy decisions. I, I did what I felt like was right, even though it took a personal toll on me and um, and I'm proud of that. I mean, when you would go out to say the grocery store, or show up at a game, how often would people want to talk about this stuff? And did it ever get tense when you were around in the community? Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a moment in, in um, when we were having a meeting in Edwardsville where, I mean, you know, we would like, I would get booed, you know, which <laughs> I've been booed before. So that's fine. I, um, but you know, these Edward, are Edwardsville. People, Edwardsville people would do you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, or they would say things or, or, um, or they would say things publicly that were just, um, you know, question my motives is if I just cared about Carbondale and, and, you know, unfortunately that's kind of, pol that's politics. And, um, and, and I'm okay. I haven't lost an ounce of sleep thinking about that. Um, did I enjoy it? No, no. And yeah, it was, it, you know, Carbondale, SIU here in Carbondale is really important to the region. And, um, 
And so it, it was a it was a hot topic on a lot of people's minds. I, I did the best that I could to not, you know, go into things with people at the grocery store. I didn't feel like that was appropriate. Um, and th- my general sense is that people appreciated, you know, me standing up and trying to expose the truth and, and fight for the right thing for the system. Um, um, but then again, not a lot of people who disagree with you are going to come tell you that at the grocery store. So, uh, and that's, you know, that's okay. I mean, it's the, it's the cost of, of, of being on the board. You're going to, you're going to make some people proud and you're going to make others really upset. And, and that's, um, that's the hard part of, of serving in that role. And, man, I, I, I'm a people pleaser. I love when, when people are happy of the work that I do, but I also know that, that that's just an impossible um, uh, accomplishment, I think, if you're going to serve in that role. And that's okay. Are you happier now that you're done with that phase of your life? <laughs> you know what? It, it really was such an honor. And I hope I'm not coming across like a complainer. We, we had, you know, in the five years that I served, we just had some of the hardest things to ever deal with. And I am proud to have been on that board and to be and to have a front row seat and to help make some decisions um, in the midst of pretty chaotic times. Um, I am happy to be at home. I'm happy that the amount of emails that I get has uh, declined by about 50%. Um, and I, man, I've got kid, I've got four kids under the age of 10. Um, I'm excited to, um, to be able to spend time with them and, and, um, you know, it was a, it was a really big sacrifice, but at the same time, I am super, um, thankful and, and appreciative of the opportunity to serve, um, the way that I did. And it's a great honor. It's a great honor. And I really hope nobody asks me to do it again for some time. Um, yeah, cause it's an honor that it's hard to say no to for all the reasons that I've stated, but right now I've got other priorities that, that, um, uh, that need my attention. But maybe later. <laughs> well, that's, that's not, that's not, uh, my, my point is, is when people ask you to serve in that sort of a role, it's hard to say no, because it, you can have such an impact on an institution you love. Right. Um, and I'm just really hoping nobody asks me, um, uh, until my kids are, uh, uh, grown. So. Yeah, no, I was, I was being somewhat facetious that <laughs> okay. you'd want to serve again. Um, but man, I tell you what, um, first of all, congratulations, because I think you, you just became our, our first two parter on uh, this, oh, nice. this podcast. So that means you have uh, tremendous depth. So oh, dude, that's good. I love it. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, just- but no, truly, you know, on, on multiple fronts on, on what we covered in this conversation, I think no matter what part of the conversation you listen to, people will be able to listen and, and take something and apply it to their own life. So, um, really great stuff. I'm, I'm glad you, you shared with us. It's, it's, I mean, I'm happy to be on the, on the podcast and wish you continued, uh, success.